the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The dark side of America's worst industry. And later we're joined by Mark Talbot to talk about his brand new book, Give Me Understanding. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Common Good on this Tuesday afternoon. My name is Aubrey Samson alongside my special guest co-host for the week, Catherine McNeil. Catherine, welcome back. Hey, I am glad to be back here today. We are so glad that you're with us today. Catherine, you posted a great picture of us in the studio saying you're going to be here all week. So I feel like it's official now. Yeah. And uh, it's going to be it's going to be fun to be with you all week. So thanks for being here. Oh, Uh, it's so fun to hang out here here with us as well. Um, Catherine, so, you know, for a Tuesday afternoon, I thought we'd just dive uh, down deep really quickly. Mm. Mm to talk about America's worst industry. If I were to say that just phrase to you without you having looked at this article, what do you think you would have said? What is America's worst industry? I mean, we have a couple pretty rough ones yeah, that we do. involve a lot of suffering and death. Yeah. But I happen to know that you are talking about the pornography industry. Yeah. It, that's a, Once you know, you know. And so it's hard to think of any other industry that's worse than the pornography industry. Um and of course, the the dark side of the pornography industry is not only the the men and women that are addicted to pornography, but their loved ones who like feel the effects of that. But then uh, David French over at the French Press is bringing to light a few things. Um, the survivors who have young girls, young women who have been, you know, in the middle of the porn industry, and they're really the victims. Mm-hmm. But then also what, what David's doing is... Um, Addressing a court case involving a woman named Serena Flites. Uh, she's a survivor of the porn industry. He's calling her a hero and talking about how her case, it's uh, Serena Flites versus MindGeek, which we'll talk about in just a minute, but is bringing to mind that there are other organizations, MindGeek being one, Visa being another, that are all deeply connected in the porn industry. And I think for French, he just wants us both to honor these women, but also be aware that some of our beloved companies um, monetize some of the pornography industry. And so I, I, he's not really making a statement about that, except wanting us to know who's behind the darkest, the, the darkest, most, uh, what does he call it? Horrific industry in America. So with that in mind, um, Catherine, did you get a chance to look at this course, uh, case court case Ooh. i can't talk on tuesday <laughs> afternoon i talk for a living this court case at all um well i haven't looked at the court case even a little bit but mm-hmm. i did read david french's article back on sunday so yeah. it's not super f- fresh in my mind but what really stands out to me was the story of the young woman who i think when she was maybe as young as 14 maybe 13 she was 13 she was, 13. She was had a video of herself in uh, un- a state of undress, mm-hmm. shall we say, here on the radio, yeah. um, uploaded to Pornhub, and it just continued 
to be downloaded mm. and reshared uh, literally millions upon millions of mm. times. Mm. And this is a 13-year-old girl. Right. Which, you know, that's not a kind con- controversial thing when when we're saying yeah. that the yeah. porn industry is a dark place we're not saying sex is bad we're scared of sex right. we're saying things that society has agreed are egregious mm-hmm. are happening there without even any controls yep yep That's and like exactly what you were right, like what you were saying um about visa there is an entire cultural framework that is allowing this to to go on. And even if we can't necessarily stop what people upload to the internet, we Mm. could impact how, how well that structure is in place Mm. to keep it going. And I think these are conversations we have to have. Yeah. They are conversations. This 13 year old girl is now 23 years old and her life has been ultimately destroyed. Yeah. Um, Yeah. She's resilient. Mm-hmm. but she has been bullied and harassed. Mm-hmm. Like, I, can you even imagine? No, it's um, so impossible. She's nearly failed school because she couldn't stay in school. She's mm-hmm. battled with depression and anxiety. She's self-medicated with drugs. She's attempted suicide. Mm-hmm. She has been exploited over and over and over again. And she has been resilient. She is surviving, mm-hmm. but... She was 13 years old 13 when this was years done old. to her. And there yeah. is simply no, there's simply no uh, regulatory body in place to make yeah. this, make her, a, say, make it possible for her to be safe. Oh, it's so devastating. Fr- French refers to a story that readers, our listeners might remember. Uh, this was out of New York Times last December, no, December 2020 called The Children of Pornhub. He calls it one of the most important news stories that he has ever read. And here's what David French says. He says, most critical stories about pornography focus on its effects on the men who consume it Mm -hmm. and on the women who date and marry the men who watch porn. Christoph's story, that's The Children of Pornhub, uh, by contrast, focused on the unconscionable exploitation and abuse that's so often inherent in the creation of the content he described an industry devoid of even the most basic controls necessary mm-hmm. to protect girls like Flaties. Let me uh, read you some of these quotes that David French shares. This is from Christoph, who wrote that article, The Children of Pornhub. Um, here's a quote. Unlike YouTube, Pornhub allows these videos to be downloaded directly from its website. So even if a rape video is removed at the request of authorities, it may already be too late. The video mm-hmm. lives on and is shared with others or uploaded again and again. The next quote is this, Pornhub became my trafficker, a woman named Callie told me. She says she was adopted in the United States from China, then trafficked by her adoptive family and forced to appear in pornographic videos beginning when she was nine. Some videos of her being abused ended up on Pornhub and regularly reappear there, she said. Mm. And here's another quote, I'm still getting sold even though I'm five years out of that life, Callie said. Now 23, she's studying in university and hoping to become a lawyer, but those old videos hang over her. I mean, this is... This is like mm. gut wrenching. This is yes. evil. This yes. is um it's it's sad. And like you said, Catherine, there's some like we're talking thirteen year olds. So like this shouldn't right. be a question at the right. end of the day. Like I'm no. not even sure why I mean I understand why this is going on, but like 
there shouldn't be a controversy about this. Right. And we, we protect our children, period. Go ahead, Catherine. I was just going to say, David French has another paragraph towards the bottom that I think really speaks to that. He Mm. says, it's important at this point to remind readers that child pornography is not constitutionally protected speech. That's right. It's creation and dissemination is criminal. Mm. And then he describes it as profoundly illegal, abusive and exploitive. And again, that's not even a debate. We all, all agree about that. The question right. is, how can we stop it? Um, you know, I think if we found out that a a thirteen year old girl was being exploited in her home, we would send the authorities. We would send DCFS. I you know, we've all known people where this has happened. Yep, that's right. To to take her out of that. But what what do we do when she is? being exploited online Mm. and there's already millions and millions of copies. Uh, Yeah. It's just, it feels, I mean, it's just so devastating. So here's, here's one of the ways that David French ends the article. I think this is a good word for all of us. Remember the name Serena Fletes. She is a survivor who has become a hero. I do not know if she'll prevail in her case. There is a long, long way to go, but if she wins, she has the potential of delivering a shattering financial blow to MindGeek. She has the potential to change the way Visa does business. Mm. And so as long as members of the media keep shining a light on her case, she will leave consumers of porn with no moral excuse. There is no justification for subsidizing the deep darkness in the worst industry in America. Wow. Whew. Well, that's a heavy word for a Tuesday afternoon, but thanks Tuesday uh, listeners for diving into that with us. And this is kind of a fun... Like melding of worlds, a, a back to the future moment for Catherine and I, because we are joined by one of our professors when we were undergrad students at Wheaton College. That is Dr. Mark Talbot. He is an author, like I said, a professor and a podcaster. He has a brand new book out that is just looks incredible. It's called Give Me Understanding That I May Live situating our suffering within God's redemptive plan. It's volume two of a series he's writing on suffering in the Christian life. Mark, thanks so much for being here with us today. I feel like I should call you professor, but can I call you Mark? Like, are we, no, no, have we gotten there yet? Call me Mark. <laughs> okay, wow. This feels, this feels like a moment. Um, we're grown-ups now, Aubrey. We're grown-ups now. It's happening. Uh, Mark, for our listeners who may not be familiar with you or this new book, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, I've been teaching at Wheaton since 92. I suppose the most important thing Mm. is that I had a paralyzing accident when I was 17. I fell about, I think it was about 50 feet off a Tarzan-like rope swing and broke my back. And virtually um, all the rest of my life has in some way or another uh, gone back to the fact that that really I found to be an unsought gift, that that was Mm. the way that God... Uh, brought me close to himself. Hmm. Wow. wow. That's what an incredible, <laughs> very short story that was. I'd love to hear the longer story. Mm-hmm. And I suspect that you, that is behind a lot of your writing. It this is. book that you've just written, I love the title. Give mm-hmm. me understanding that I may live. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you're hoping to give the reader in this book? Well, it seems to me, Catherine, that what we've got here are in the first two books are two uh, absolutely essential perspectives in order for us to make sense of life. In the Mm -hmm, first book, When the Stars Disappear, Help and Hope from Stories of Suffering and Scripture, in that book, what I was trying to do was to make clear to Christians that there's a great deal of suffering in Scripture. Mm. 
because mm. people don't realize that they don't see mm. the suffering in scripture until yeah. they themselves are suffering. And yeah. then what it was supposed to do was to help people endure through their suffering. So that okay. deals with what we could call our personal stories, which orient us to life. The wow. second book deals with our, the general story, what we could say is the true story of the whole world. And we have to get oriented with regard to that story, because if we don't, then we are not going to know what life is all about. So wow. the book is dealing with, there are four parts to the full Christian story, creation, rebellion, redemption, and consummation. And I'd suggest mm -hmm. that most Christians know very little about the first and the last parts, and they are the mm -hmm. most important for our getting oriented in this life. Wow. wow. Oh, that's so, so profound, Mark. Um, let me ask you a question, because I'm sure you've researched and thought a lot about this, but I, I would agree with you that we are not familiar with suffering in scripture. I think we have a very anemic theology of suffering, at least here in the States. Do you have thoughts about why, like how has that happened in our formation? I think probably Aubrey, it has to do with the way that we pitched the gospel for a couple mm. hundred years in the United States. And more or wow. less what it comes to is that the gospel was something that would, in some sense or another, make your life better. Now, it was true that until maybe a hundred years ago, it was pitched in terms of one's individual sin and the fact that one's individual sin would be forgiven. Uh, that has dropped more and more out of sight, which is, of course, a shame. But mm. what it comes to is that in the New Testament, the center of the gospel is that Jesus was raised from the dead. Uh, there would be no Christianity if it weren't for the fact that our Lord appeared to his disciples yes. and many others again and again. And the drumbeat all the way through Acts is Jesus and Anastasis, which is the word mm -hmm. resurrection. Yes. So I would suggest that we aren't generally thinking of the full story. We're thinking at the most of the way that Christianity is going to somehow make our lives better. And we're not thinking of what God is trying to accomplish. It's only yeah. within that full wow. framework that then suffering becomes something that you need to understand and that you need to endure. Wow. So Mark, um, one of the taglines for one of the chapters that really stood out to me. It's what suffering should prompt us to seek. <laughs> and that feels like such a, uh, a, a phrase full of potential that suffering <laughs> is an invitation. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if you could tell us more about that. What should suffering prompt us to seek? Uh, we generally don't have people define what suffering is or characterize yeah. it. Right. Uh, both Christians and non-Christians don't. I characterize suffering as um, uh, having any experience which is, in fact, unpleasant enough that we would like it to end. So suffering mm. involves any experience which is unpleasant enough that we'd like it to end. And if you think about it, uh, Hebrews 12 talks about suffering that way. Now, the important thing about that is that then there are mild forms of suffering, such as at the end of a day, if we've done what we're supposed to do, we should be tired. Right. Uh, and, yes. and that is a mild form of suffering. And mm -hmm. then there are more and more excruciating forms of suffering. Yeah. All of them are such that they are meant to make us look up and ask, okay, what is this life about? What wow. is it that today I am supposed to be doing? 
in order to advance God's gospel in the world. Mm, wow. Oh, it's so good, Mark. Um, I, I, I want to go back to your accident at age. You said 17. Uh-huh. Is that right? I, I can only imagine that you have wrestled with the question of suffering and uh, just the odyssey in the middle of all of that. And just even personally, like beyond even thinking about it academically, like, God, where are you in this? What are you doing in this? Mm-hmm. Can you just, I mean, maybe for our readers, I'm thinking who are hurting right now or walking with someone who's hurting. Can you kind of unpack your own heart and God's heart for you in the middle of all of that? Yeah, let me do it in two pieces, Aubrey. With regard to my accident, I was a wild kid, and uh, my accident happened uh, on the weekend after my junior year of high school. And I knew Mm. that I was in trouble in various ways. I was driving Mm. breakneck speeds down um, uh, uh, country roads. I knew that I could hurt myself that way. I used to race go-karts and quarter midgets, and so I was a pretty good driver, but I knew I could hurt myself those ways. Uh, I didn't get along with my fellow classmates or my teachers at school. I was looking forward to college. I knew I could get in because of being bright, but I just assumed that I would not be able to get through even one year of college because I wouldn't be disciplined enough. Wow. Wow. Here's the interesting (laughs) thing in my case. When I hit the ground and I had slowed down another fellow who had been on the rope with me and fell with me, when I hit the ground and I realized that my feet uh, were in this little creek and I realized I wasn't feeling anything, I immediately felt that that was a gift from God. Now, this is really odd, and this doesn't generally happen to people, but what more or less happened was that I knew right then that all of the distractions of my life were Mm -hmm. falling away and that Mm -hmm. I was going to have to pay attention to what was important. Wow. So that experience was quite different than other people's. The other half of it is when I've dealt with other kinds of suffering, such as not being able to get my dissertation done for a long time (laughs) and, and, and getting seriously depressed with regard to that, What I found was that if I didn't get up every morning and spend an hour to an hour and a half reading scripture or reading really good theology and praying, I just couldn't get through the day. And so that, in fact, was probably closer to more uh, to most people's experience that that what usually happens to us on suffering is that we realize we have to look up to God and we have to say, Lord, comfort me, help me, give me hope. Mm -hmm. Wow. This is such good word, and I'm eager for our listeners to find you and connect with your book. Can you tell us where we can find you online or in a bookstore and where we can connect with your work? Um, You can find uh, both of the books at places like Amazon or ChristianBook.com. Interestingly enough, a place called Solid Ground Christian Books right now has a sale on the two of them, 22 bucks for the two, and it's supposed to be 22 books just for the second book, so you get both books together. Uh, I've got a podcast, When the Stars Disappear, all one word. Uh, That's easy to find. Uh, People can find me on the Wheaton College website. And um, I'll even give you my my um, email, mark.talbot, T-A-L-B-O-T, at wheaton.edu. Wonderful. Mark Talbot is a Wheaton College professor, author, and podcaster. We've been talking with him about suffering and pain and uh, what that all means 
in light of the larger Christian story, his brand new book, Give Me Understanding That I May Live, is available wherever you get your books. And again, don't miss that sale. What was the name of that Christian bookstore, Mark? Solid Ground Christian Books. I don't know how he sells things so cheaply. Man, that is the place to buy both of these books. Mark, thanks so much for being here with us today. We've loved our time with you. It's been really good. Thank you. All right, Catherine, uh, since we're both authors, we are. I felt like you and I could talk about uh, a pretty difficult topic. I know some people think this is cut and dry. I wrestle with it. That is the topic of book banning. Oh, and, man. And uh, it's not, you know, we're not in the 50s anymore. We're not. It's, it's uh, 2022. I don't know if you heard. I but, have. Uh, there is an increase in book banning and an increase of, about book banning, uh, just the conversation around it. And uh, the New York Times is covering this story. They're saying book banning attempts have grown in the U.S. over the past few years from relatively isolated battles to a broader effort aimed at works about sexual and racial identity. Alexandra Alter and Elizabeth Harris began talking about this. And what's interesting to me is I can remember, I think it was last fall, there's a Republican representative in Texas who put together a list of books that he said were inappropriate in schools. And this is where I struggle, Catherine, is some of them I was like, oh, yeah, I don't know if I would want my elementary school child coming uh, coming across this book and reading it without me knowing. But right. then some of them I was like, wait, we're actually reading these books as a family. Hold up. Right. So yes. I think this is ultimately what's tricky is who decides and how do we decide? And do we just say all book banning is bad, anti-American, we don't do that? Or do we say, well, there is a place, I think, for, you know, age appropriateness. I don't know. This is a, this is a, it's not as cut and dry or black and white as I think people think. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Yeah. Catherine, what's, what's your feeling, especially as an author, what's your feeling about book banning? <laughs> well, I think it kind of, de- it begin. I think we have to begin with our terms. What does book banning, book mm. banning mean it sounds extremely scary yeah but if we're talking about my local elementary school librarian deciding which schools are going which books are going to be in the library that just sounds like her job you know what i mean someone someone has to decide to make that decision i wouldn't want her saying this not that Mm -hmm. to be considered book banning because Mm -hmm. i'm going to assume that she has the correct credentials and degrees to be making good decisions i'm going to be trusting her yeah to choose books that are going to educate my children and not traumatize my children yeah but i feel like book banning sometimes means as simple as the librarian deciding what schools what books to have in the school but sometimes it means something else yeah um what do you know what we're talking about here yeah so um i mean i can give you examples based on this but she's talking here's what she says um, this is, uh, again, two, uh, two folks in the publishing industry that are talking about this. She says, a lot of the people I've spoken to say that they don't consider bans that they want to be racist or bigoted. They say the books contain specific content they feel isn't appropriate for children, and they'll sometimes point to explicit passages. Okay, so here's – so that's, I think, one side of, of what they mean by book banning. There's just some parents saying – look, this doesn't feel appropriate. I'm not ready for my child to come across this. I want to have these conversations Uh at home alone with my children. I'm not ready to introduce in. I don't want someone else to introduce this topic about like LGBTQ rights or race to my children. I want to have that conversation with my kids. Parents are saying it. However, according to this article, New York Times, librarians are saying that the most challenged books around the country are basically all about black or brown or LGBTQ. 
characters. So, okay. I, so there's even, Catherine, I mean, to answer your question, I think there's even a debate about what book banning means to certain groups of people. And so we, we maybe can't even agree on like ontologically what we're talking sure. about yeah. here. Um, but I would say that part of the population says this is a kind of political move and um, a racist move or a bigoted move. And the other part of the population is saying, no, we just want to be the ones parenting our children <sighs> and not have them, you know, introduce to something. Now, I will say this stood out to me. Um a woman named Elizabeth that they talked to, she says in Virginia Beach, a local politician sued Barnes and Noble over two books. Here's why this stood out to me. I don't know this first book. It's called Gender Queer. Okay. But okay. the second book, here's why I want to bring this up. This is in an elementary school. Okay. This book was, no, I'm sorry. This book was being sold to minors in Barnes and Noble, a book called okay. The Court of Mist and Fury. Here's why that stood out to me because I know that author and I started reading that book last summer and I literally had to return it. And I'm oh. a 44 year old woman. Like it oh, was, wow. it was super. I mean, I hope I can say this word on the radio. It was a very erotic novel and I was not prepared for that because oh. I thought it was a fantasy novel. And it was set in a fantasy world, but like it was not a fantasy. It was not J.R.R. Yeah. Tolkien. You know what I mean? Okay. Yes, so I do. I, as a grown woman, had to return it. I would never, I wouldn't want my 16 year old to open that book. That was part why, partly why I didn't keep it in the house because I was like, uh uh, no, no, no. So this is again, oh, wow. where I get a little torn because I'm like, well, yeah, those, those books should not be sold to minors. I know the content that's in there. Sure. But then, then again, the other side of the debate is, can I be the determining factor for someone else's children? Right. Um, and you know, anyway, it's a, it's a, it is an interesting debate where I don't know how to ask you this, Catherine. I don't know if I should even ask you, where do you fall in book? banning but like how do you make decisions maybe with discernment with your kids on what they should and shouldn't consume let's take it more personally okay well i oh man this is hard and you know i think as you pointed out suing a group of parents trying to remove something from a school library or a politician suing a bookstore that's different from a librarian making decisions um yeah yeah and it does that's a get really tricky. because that's an important point yeah that's not just saying, I'm making this decision for my kids. It's saying, I am trying mm -hmm. to use power to make authority for everyone or make decisions for everyone's kids. Yeah. Uh, I, I yeah. do find this to be tricky because I'm a bookworm. Everyone in my family are bookworms. And so my kids yeah. read at a rate far past. I have three kids. I can't. I can't read all of the books that they're reading, nor, frankly, do I want right. to. Um, so I right. do rely a lot on have, what, what do I know about this author? What do I know about the publisher? Mm -hmm. What do I know about the distributor? Mm -hmm. And then I rely mm -hmm. on having a lot of really good conversations with my kids. And they yeah. have brought me things saying, hey, there's this one page and... I, I'm wondering if you want me to stop reading the book. And and then we've had a good conversation hmm. about it. And yeah. with my now high schooler, kind of the standard that I have is um, are, are women and people of color being depicted respectfully? I'm not concerned hmm. if race is being brought up or if sexuality mm -hmm. is being brought up, brought up, if it's being yeah. brought up in a way that is respectful and not demeaning. Yeah. Um, yeah. but I would have a different standard for my 11 year old. So right. Right. I do think that ultimately it comes down to parenting, I think you so know, R rated movies exist. Uh, we were mm -hmm. just talking about, uh, the incredibly violent and 
egregious content that's available on the internet. I don't think we will succeed at making the world free of content we don't want our children to hear or see. I think we do need to be very active um, as parents and, but also as community members, you know, like Aubrey, when you have my kids in the car, ask them, Mm -hmm. what have you been reading? What have you been watching? Right. Um, I would love that. Um, but, oh, it is tough and it's tough. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) that's my bottom line. I think ultimately, you know, I, I think ultimately it is, this is where parents need to be really proactive. I think that's what I would say. Like, I, I don't, I think you're right. Like, I don't know that there's any way legislation is going to remove content from the entire realm with which our kids can access, where our kids can access content. Yes. I, I just don't think that's possible. And I'm not even sure I think that's a fight worth having. Like we need to keep teach our children discernment about what they consume, how to, how to think critically about what they're seeing and consuming, how to make decisions that yes. are wise. Yes. And, and ultimately I think that's the, that's the charge for parents to be involved, for community members to be involved with other kids. And like, let's all do this thing together and learn how to make decisions wisely. Um, but anyway, interesting. I, I just, it's, it still kind of shocks me to think that in 2022, we're, we're talking about book banning. Cause that seems like it's straight out of Fahrenheit 451 or some other question. I don't know. <laughs> Yesterday we covered, uh, the slap, the response Ooh. to the slap, the apology for the slap, the big Will Smith slap. He, uh, put a video all on, on the internet over the weekend, apologizing what we said pretty profoundly like it was a good apology apologizing to chris rock and then uh in uh in i guess i'm trying to think if this is in like was this the media or was this real but i started getting all of these posts on social media saying Chris Rock has a message about playing the victim after the Will Smith apology mm-hmm. video, which, yes. uh, I, you know, all kinds of people are saying he responded, he responded, he responded. And as you and I kind of look through the article, it doesn't seem like Chris Rock really responded. He didn't directly address Smith's video. He basically he did kind of indirectly say, I'm not going to claim to be a victim. And that was sort of it. Yeah, I, you know, I think even while we were at the studio yesterday recording about um, Will Smith's apology, my phone was getting just notification after notification Mm. that Chris Rock responds. Mm. Um, But when I actually sat down to look at it, it it seemed to be just another article about Will Will Smith's apology. Yeah, Yeah, just with a different headline. But with a, a tiny, a tiny little insert that says that hours after Will Smith's apology. Yeah. Chris Rock took the stage um, at a comedy show that he was already scheduled to take, Mm -hmm. did his totally normal set, Mm -hmm. but inserted the phrase, if everybody claims to be a victim, nobody will hear the real victims, which I think he even normally says that. I think this is this is the new part. Even me getting smacked by Suge Smith, Suge Smith. Mm -hmm. um, I went to work the next day. I got kids. So. I don't know that that's a response to the apology. Right. What do right. you think? Yeah, because the question is, would he have said that anyway in his uh, 
in his show and he may have been saying that for several months and right. someone just happened to tune in after the apology i don't think that's a response to the apology i really I don't, don't think so either. i think this that's, feels i think that's his fodder for his show uh-huh it works well and maybe he'll respond or maybe he won't i mean i think that's Chris Rock has every right to respond or not to respond and to respond publicly for us to consume or not to. Exactly. And so I I think, you know, it's it's kind of interesting, though, even the way the media jumped on this, like, there's a response, there's a response, there's a response. And really, it wasn't a response, which I mean, I think shows you like they know what gets clicked. Exactly. They they know we want this fodder. But I think the deeper question is, Catherine, and actually we've got a few more like controversial celebrity stories to talk about here in a minute. Why do we want this fodder? I think that's, (laughs) I think that to me is the question. Like, why do I care about Chris Rock and Will Smith? And yet I do. Yeah. I think it's the soap opera, you know, like, oh, did you see that she said that, Mm -hmm. you know, when drama is happening in my family, it causes me pain and I don't like it. And I want us to all just go back to, you know, drinking tea on the porch. But when drama is happening to some other people that aren't connected to us, then that can just, that's just exciting. (laughs) You could just, you can really sort of like evilly, evilly consume it, but you don't feel it, right? Because you're not actually connected to them. It doesn't cost us anything. Sort of like a a sweet little, a sweet little dessert. Okay, um, Catherine, so I know you are, you are admittedly like not, you're not the one reading People magazine or catching up on all the pop culture news. You know who is? By the way, you are Brian Fromm no. is really Brian Fromm. Brian oh. Fromm subscribes to People really? Magazine. He loves what? celebrity news. Yes. What? He has opinions about celebrity news. I don't want to say more than me, but like sometimes more than me. He knows things I don't know. So I feel like in honor of from we're going to do the very thing that we just said we probably shouldn't do which is talk about celebrities that are in controversy this week okay Okay. kind of in honor of will smith and chris rock (laughs) all right do you know the singer shakira i i can't say i know the singer but i have heard and enjoyed songs that i intellectually know are by Shakira. By Shakira. Okay. Okay. There you go. That's a great answer, Captain. <laughs> she made headline, headlines this week because she was accused of tax fraud, which oh. could land her in prison for eight years. I, I, my, I have very serious doubts that Shakira is going to jail. But anyway, uh, that's kind of an interesting one. And then I don't know if you heard this. I saw this all over because I follow Candace Cameron Bure on social media. Okay. Do you know this whole controversy with JoJo Siwa and Candace Cameron Bure that happened this week? My dear friend, Aubrey, I'm so glad that you have Brian Fromm in your life. (laughs) As you know, I don't know the first thing about any famous people. (laughs) Okay. Can I tell you this story then? Because this is kind of wild. Okay. Please tell me because I care about you. What's important to you is important to me. Thank you. <laughs> okay, so JoJo Siwa put a video on TikTok where she's calling Candace Cameron Bure the rudest celebrity she's ever met. Now, for people okay. who know Candace Cameron from Full House, yes. she is known for actually being one of the kindest, sweetest, loveliest Aww. celebrities around. And part of it is she's very um, intentional about sharing her faith openly. And because of that, she's also very intentional about 
like almost overly being kind to people because she understands that like she's she's representing Christianity in a lot of ways on her platform. Okay. So this was the first big controversy involving Candace Cameron. Okay. So Candace Cameron, this is how I found out about it. She went on Instagram and um she made a video. First of all, she called I appreciated this. She called Jojo, first of all, before oh. she went publicly with anything and just said, Can we talk about what happened? And essentially when Jojo Siwa was eleven years old, she met Candace Cameron at the Fuller House uh, premiere. They were all on the red oh. carpet. Jojo Siwa asked to have a picture with her. Candace Cameron said, no, not right now. And then proceeded to take pictures with other people. So that was like the big Jojo Siwa's feelings were hurt. And that's what she posted about. So Candace Cameron called her, apologized to her, and then went online explaining, here's what happened. Okay, so then that seems to sort of be like they worked through whatever they needed to. But then the crazy thing is Candace Cameron's daughter, Natasha, was not having it. And she what? got on to Jojo Siwa and said, look, respectfully, someone saying no to taking a picture with you is not a rough experience. This generation oh. is so sensitive and has zero backbone. Grow up. There are bigger <gasps> issues in the world than this. Oh, my god. So that became, that became a family drama. Ma- daughter was standing up for mom after mom had kind of cleared the air. Uh, well, I mean, uh, I definitely hear Natasha's point there, but it's kind yeah. of a bummer that Candace had done the work to build know, the bridge. I know. And I know. then she drops the bomb. Oh, what a twist. No wonder you I like know. celebrity drama. <laughs> <laughs> okay, can I tell you one more story that's not super controversial, you but it's you actually can. very entertaining? Okay, yes. thank you. I promise you we will end with the celebrity gossip here. Um, Okay, so apparently Ben Affleck fell asleep on a boat with Jennifer Lopez. <laughs> you can search this picture. It is so funny. Ben Affleck is asleep like everyone falls asleep. Head back on a chair, but mouth yeah. wide open. Like, it's so awkward. It's not like sexy Ben Affleck falling asleep on a beach. It's like awkward dad falling asleep on a beach, you know, or a falling asleep on a boat. But everyone is turning it into memes, like memes all over the internet. So it's not super controversial, but kind of entertaining. That is hilarious. I'm looking at a picture yep. of it right now. My life Pretty is funny, right? marginally better because I know this. Thank you. <laughs> see, Thank you, see, Aubrey. It all, it all works yes. out in the end. All right. Well, it maybe does. we'll see if later this week if Chris Rock responds or if there's more celebrity controversy. We'll talk about okay. that. Um, Catherine, we're going to have a inception moment, a meta moment. I'm not exactly sure okay. how to describe this, but... As our listeners should know by now, Catherine is not only a regular uh, co-host here on The Common Good, she's also an author and a speaker. And as an author, she writes articles, had an article come out with Tyndale Church Connect back in May that I thought was really cogent for right now. And so here's what we're going to do. Well, I'll let you decide, Catherine, because you're the author. Either, either, here's some choices. I can recap the article and you can sort of fill in... Uh, editorialize or you set it up for us and then I'll ask you some questions about it. That's my preference, but you, okay. you're the author. So I will bow oh, wow. in submission so, to you. This really is meta. I will call the shots here and decide okay. that I'll, I'll set up the article and then you can kind of comment on it, it and okay. ask me some questions. Let's do it. Okay. So this is an article I wrote, uh, 
earlier this spring, so in 2022, but I was looking back to the beginning of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that? Do you, does oh, everyone Catherine. here remember oh, there was a pandemic? I've heard of you it. Okay. I've heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, this, I was looking back to the period of time where Illinois was under a mask mandate, and I'm grateful that we were. It helped to keep mm-hmm. us safe um, during a really important time, yeah. especially the especially the essential workers yeah. who, unlike myself, weren't able to work from their bedrooms but had to go in yeah. into the public every day. Yeah. So in addition to the Illinois mask mandate, a lot of individual stores had mandates so that even if they were, let, let's say Home Depot, for example... Even if they weren't operating in a place like Illinois that had a mask mandate, they could still say all of our employees and all of our customers are going to wear a mask. And they can do that because it's it's their company. It's their space. So back in those days, an acquaintance of mine went to, let's say, Home Depot. I don't actually remember. It was one of those uh, do-it-yourself kind of hardware stores. And... There's two reasons for him to, well, at least two, to wear a mask, the Illinois mandate and the store's own policy. But when he was met at the door, he was not wearing a mask. So he was offered a mask and he was asked to put on a mask and he kept refusing and the situation escalated. And of course, he caught it all on camera. Mm. So the situation is the store politely asking him to mask in accordance with both uh, local and uh, store policies Mm -hmm. and him becoming more more and more belligerent mm. to the until finally the store manager had to ask him to leave he refused to leave um ultimately he was gone <laughs> um yeah. And he posted his video with all this rhetoric about how he was a Christian hero mm. who um, had fought the good fight, the Christian fight to stand up for his rights and not to be made to back down from Mm. his Christian beliefs. And that really left me scratching my head Mm. because what I wanted to know, whatever your thoughts on our mass about masking, whatever your thoughts are about mask mandates, how did it become a Christian virtue or a Christian question to say, what is the most they can make me do Mm. rather than what are the needs and how can we help? What is the most I can do mm. to serve the community? Yeah. So a question of can, can they make me versus mm. what can I do? Mm. And which of those is the Christian question? Yeah. So that's what I wanted to explore in this article. Yeah. I, I Catherine, I think it is such a poignant article because, you know, what? ideally, and you know, you and I have said this before, we don't want to go back to a time where we need to wear masks again. We're praying that pandemics are a thing of the past, right? Ooh, please. And yet I think what you're pointing out, and I think this is so important for us as Christians in America to really begin to search within our own hearts and our own communities to see is where have we mistaken American virtues with Christian virtues? Because I do think it is very American and to say it is my right you will not take that from me. And, that is American. and any mm-hmm. sort of standing up against you taking it from me is heroic in American culture. And in, in mm-hmm. some instances, I can understand the, the need, the desire to do that. But what you're saying is, can we allow 
Christian virtue to be the thing that leads us, which for any of us, any of us who follow Jesus, American or not, what we understand is that we have a savior who what I mean, intentionally let go of his rights, Philippians 2 talks yes. about, and gave yes. his own life. And so in in all situations, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, that's the call. And I I think the question you're asking is really important, Catherine. Like, when did this when did this happen that we got kind of mixed up? about our personal rights being more important than serving and caring for the least of these and sacrificing. Um, And so I appreciate, I know we're sort of beyond a masking conversation, but I do think this is a question for all times. Yes. Uh, Can I read you? Can I, can I read you your own quote? Oh, I would love that. Please do. (laughs) Okay. Um, Again, you're, you're talking in the context of COVID You say this, I had hoped that Christians discipled for centuries to love sacrificially, to consider others above ourselves, to value all life and protect the most vulnerable. Again, what you're talking about are very like staple biblical things. You say, I would hope that we would be inspired by such a goal, especially since it asks so little of us. We Christians were not requested to give up our homes or empty our bank accounts to save these 50,000 lives. You're talking about lives taken by COVID at the time merely to wear a mask during a 90-minute church service. All this left me scratching my head. The question being weighed seemed to be, what is the most they can make us do rather than what are the needs and how can we help? How can we best serve and protect our community? For a community of faith, when the potential to take or save lives hangs in the balance, what does the question, can they make us, do we have to, have to do with it? And uh, um, I know you kind of said that's the the crux of this article, and I think that's really the crux of the Christian question today in, in America. You know, the, again, like you said, Jesus was God poured out himself to come and take on humanity so that he could be with us. Um, But we have so many more examples and commands beyond that. Mm. You know, uh, when Paul was talking to the group of people who agreed with him that their conscience was clean, they could eat this food. Mm-hmm. He said, he kind of had this like sidebar conversation. He's like, you know, but these, this other group of our brothers and sisters don't feel like a kid's okay. So we're not going to do it right. around them right. so that they'll feel comfortable. Right. And he said, you know, everything is allowed for me to do, but not everything is beneficial. So Mm. make the decision that will most serve your brothers and sisters. It will most lead to harmony. And, and I don't know that we are running questions through that filter anymore. Um, what is the, how can I serve you? What, what can I give up that I have to promote you and to help you? I'm going to read another line. Yeah, please do. Way back when, Christians were known, complained about even, for compassion and kindness that went beyond the norm, for the sacrifices they made on behalf of the poor in their community and even those outside their community. When it came to sacrificial acts of compassion and protection, the early Christians did not orient their decision around the question, do I have to, can you make me? Today's pressing social issues will fade away eventually, and others will take their place. But our mission is evergreen, loving our neighbor, even strangers, and even enemies. Let's practice asking together what is the most that we can do together. 
in Jesus' name. Mm, so good, Catherine. Thanks so much for that word. And thanks so much for talking about it with us. You can read Catherine's article at Tyndale Church Connect. Again, the title of the article is What is the Least I Must Do is Not a Christian Question. The end of the show on Tuesday evening. And at the end of the show, we love to bring you something either challenging, inspiring, or just some kind of lighthearted to put a smile on your face. And that's sort of what this category of conversation is. Catherine, you want to set it up for us? I would love to. So, Aubrey, I just came back from vacation. Yes. Uh, your co-host, Brian Fromm, is currently on vacation. Yes. And I know that you and I have talked before about how we do not have the same ideal vacation. We don't have the same we, vacation styles. I think that's right. Okay. Yeah, that's right. That's probably the way to say it. Mm -hmm. And we've also discussed whether or not we have married people <laughs> who have a similar vacation style. Right. And what do you do if you want to go on vacation mm. with your spouse or your friend mm -hmm. or another couple or another family? And one person hears the word vacation and thinks, you know, backwoods hiking right. and camping right. where you carry everything in and you sleep in a hammock uh -huh. and the other person is expecting an all-inclusive resort yeah. where you lay by the beach right what what do you think about that Aubrey what is your vacation <laughs> style this is literally my marriage and this is so this is so <laughs> funny because Kevin is I mean Kevin just got back from like several days hiking the Colorado Trail which he does every year his vacation is the adventure like he does. He wants to hike everything in, carry it on his back. He wants to live ruggedly. And and in his mind, simply, what cracks me up about this is I actually feel like camping is one of the most high-maintenance vacations you can possibly take because you have to like have all this gear and carry yeah. it to boil water and dig holes. Yep. And I'm like, that's not low-maintenance. That is not vacation. <laughs> so he has a certain type of style. And I am not – I mean, I don't necessarily need to live in the lap of luxury, but I definitely like to be on a beach or be by pool reading or be on a beautiful back porch reading. Like I, I mm -hmm. like a, I like a reading vacation essentially in the yeah. sun. And as our listeners know very well, I like a theme park vacation too. Which, I was, what's very funny about say. this because <laughs> Kevin would say that's the most high maintenance vacation ever, and I would be mm -hmm. like, "What are you talking about? You like get up and you walk to a park and ride rides. There's no maintenance involved. So it's just funny. <laughs> like we just have totally different points of view when it comes to our vacations." That's really What about funny. you and Matthew? Where are you guys on uh, vacation styles? I think we're pretty similar yeah. in theory. Uh, we both would like our vacation to involve beautiful nature. Okay. We would like it to include seeing new places or having adventures that we haven't had. Mm -hmm. And we would both like it to involve delicious food. Nice. But... We have a different understanding of how many hours there are in a day. <laughs> um, in our most in our most recent vacation, we had gotten up, driven hours to a national park, uh, hiked, explored, wrung every bit of joy we could from the national yeah. park, then either driven to the next location or like gotten to our hotel only to get up in the morning and drive to the next one. So we are going, going, mm -hmm. going. We are seeing as much as we can. We're doing as much as we can. But I was also recovering from covid and i oh. wasn't recovering very well oh catherine and there was one day when we had been hiking and exploring um in this national park since the minute it opened and it was 105 degrees that day Ooh. there's no shade Ooh. we're in the prairie Brutal. and there was it was 
literally five o'clock in the evening. And so we have had a full day and the kids are like, we're out. Take us back to the hotel. We're We're going to the Uh pool. And my husband is like, wait, why are you guys bailing? Why wouldn't we keep on hiking? (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, oh, I I think we're just done now. Right, right. (laughs) But he was not done. (laughs) No. And there was this one hike I really wanted to go on, but the rangers said, oh, it's too dangerous today. It's too hard. It's too, the sun is too bright. There's no shade. We are not recommending anyone go on it. And my husband's like, well, we should go. (laughs) I I need to, I just need to sit down. (laughs) Oh, that's very funny. Yeah. We're we're very similar, but we just have a different understanding of how long a day is. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So how do you and your husband work out how to spend that vacation time and very limited vacation Mm -hmm. budget. Mm -hmm. It's taken us a while to figure this out and where we've, where we've kind of landed. And I will say the season of life is older. We have older kids now. We have Uh a little bit more flexibility in our schedules now. So I want to be very clear. This is not something we were doing when we had little, little kids and we were like Mm -hmm. barely had time to take showers, let alone sleep, you know? Um, We are very committed to like Kevin once a year does his Colorado trail hiking trip and he either invites our sons or invites a friend or goes by himself. And like, that's his life giving place. I am so for him. And he is very committed to me getting to not always a Disney theme park because that can be a pretty penny, but (laughs) you know, like uh, something along those lines, like we get to at least we, we bless each other to go somewhere on a good vacation, not necessarily with each other, but then we always sort of do a compromise in the summer where we are, we agree upon a place. It's usually pretty affordable, but it it's some kind of combo of like, it's got a pool. So I feel like I've got right. that poolside place to read or a porch poolside place to, to read. But it's also maybe like a cabin somewhere, right? Mm. It, it's not going to be like a luxurious mm. hotel. It's probably not going to be a theme park, even though I would want it to be. Um, but we tend to do that as a family in the summer, like okay. a cabin somewhere okay. on a lake with a pool. Oh, that sounds really amazing. Yeah, actually. so it, can it, I it come? Works. Um, yes, you can come if you want okay. to. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Or maybe just the two okay. of us will go somewhere. Oh, even better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, uh, have, my husband and I, have joked that we probably need to find another couple where I can sit and drink coffee and read books mm-hmm. in a beautiful in in the beautiful location. Mm-hmm. While he and the other person goes and does something just absolutely exhausting. And then they can come back and we can do a little activity together. Uh-huh. And then I'll go back to reading books and drinking coffee. I feel coffee like we with, could be the couple for that person. as long as we're not having to camp. Because I'm not going to camp out on the ground. So that's my only... Okay. I might need to stay at the hotel down the street while you, the three of you camp on the ground or something. Well, we could. I think we could be at a cabin. Okay. All right. That's a good okay. compromise. We'll have a, con- right. we'll have a conversation about this. Okay. We're talking about this because over at the Scenic Suitcase... Uh, she, she's got, uh, her name is Stephanie. She writes there. She says there are 10 types of vacations. Okay. And, uh, which one is right for you? So Catherine, I'm just going to quickly go through the 10 types and and maybe situate yourself. Okay. Even though you've just told us, all right. Mm -hmm. Uh, a trip abroad. Mm. Um, there's some beautiful pictures here, by the way, listeners, if you want to go to scenicsuitcase.com, a trip to the beach, a camping trip. We've just talked about that. A trip to the city, hmm. uh, a road trip. It's kind of fun mm. to think about a road trip as a vacation. A cruise, a group tour. 
I've actually been thinking about a group tour more and more. A guy's trip or a gal's trip. I always like those. Those are very fun. A solo trip mm. uh, or a staycation. Okay, so if for your next trip you could pick any of those, which would you pick? I think I would either do... No, I'm confident. I would do a trip abroad. I love going to other countries. Yeah. And but I think I I've actually said this to my husband. I need our vacation that we do next to involve a lot of resting. Ah, uh, yeah, especially after those long days of <laughs> We have had long road trips, long long road trip yeah. vacations and lots of adventure. Yeah. So a trip abroad with relaxing. How about you? I would like to do I think a beach trip I'm up for again. I love I okay. love the beach. Um, and I would also do a trip abroad. That sounds nice too. I'm up, I'm up okay. for either one of those. You and I have jokingly talked about going on a cruise together every we once have. in a while. So maybe that's, maybe that needs to be on our list as well. Um, okay. So it's fun to think about vacations, even though summer is slowly coming to an end listeners, you can let us know your favorite type of vacation on our social media at common good talk. Uh, and Catherine and I will be back again tomorrow from four to 6 PM. I'm coming back. Can't wait to have you back, back tomorrow. Uh, so for Catherine McNeil, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.